the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. Today we are very pleased to have Roderick K. Durst of Gateway Seminary and their professor of historical theology. Today Mr. Durst is talking about the Emmaus Road and moving from opinion to conviction. Gateway Seminary operates a system of five campuses situated near urban cities of the western region of the United States. They are a theological graduate school that educates men and women to take the gospel to the nations. Known as one of the most multicultural seminaries in the world, Gateway Seminary's diversity enables it to equip and challenge students to more effective ministry leadership in the 21st century. Find out more about Gateway Seminary at their website, gs.edu. And now here's Roderick K. Durst on the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday message. Uh, It's good to be back with you. Um, I know that passage feels like a leftover Easter sermon, doesn't it? Um, Sometime in the last week, I ate my last peep. You know what a peep is? Marshmallow chick. Um, somebody told me you can get those lemonade flavored now. Have any of you had one of those? I have not eaten one of those. Now, I'm a, a peep connoisseur. I prefer my peeps to be aged. The, it's more chewy. And um, it's always a, a difficult day when the last peep has been eaten. But happily, I discovered my wife set some back in the freezer. So uh, I ate those too. <laughs> then, uh, just this week, I discovered a little view of bright yellow at the back of the freezer. So I know there are more peeps for me, uh, but I have resisted so far. Um, and this, uh, this passage in Luke 24 is... Is, is a bit of a peep, uh, a little bit of a leftover, uh, but I think it, it, it fits well. Uh, last night, my wife and I were at um, a fundraising dinner, a celebration for a women's transition home in Rin County called Gilead House. And part of the reason we went is we knew we'd have an opportunity to see many really treasured Christian friends from the years gone by. One of the friends was there with her mother, and we found out that this summer, actually in two weeks, they are going to go to Spain uh, to walk a pilgrim trail. From It's called um, Santiago de Compostelo. It's really from the coast of Spain on the Mediterranean uh, to France. It's 480 miles. And I think they do it at a pace of about 11 miles a day. It will take six weeks. Um, I can't wait to see what they look like when they get back. (laughs) I asked them what kind of shoes they would have and what's the furthest they've walked. And I don't, they're not super long walkers. 
their idea is to start walking at six in the morning and walk until one because then they can check into their hostel, um, sort of a very inexpensive pilgrim's um, hotel. And most important is you get there before two o'clock because in Spain, two o'clock is siesta time and there's no work to be done. You can't get help for anything. You just have to take a nap and, and wait. So they hope to get there before siesta time so they can get checked in so then they can take a nap in a, in a place. Um, I don't know if I want to do that. 480 miles. Uh, maybe it would be a lot of fun. They go through some beautiful cities. Any of you been on such a pilgrimage like this? Now think about it though. For six weeks, now, my friend is going, her mother's going, and her two sisters are going also. Think about what you could talk over in that walk for six weeks with your precious family members. I imagine they will rehearse everything. And that's, that's sort of what I want us to think about. The road to Emmaus is seven miles. Now, you can do that in half a day. And there's something about walking and talking. Sometimes we say, you know, walk your talk, meaning that the way you live ought to line up with the way you talk. But there's something about walking and talking that enables the kinds of discussions and even illuminations that can be life-changing. And I think that's why pilgrimage is so important, although they didn't know that they were on a pilgrimage. Um, pilgrimage means when the walking and the talking meets God. And that's what happens on the road to Emmaus. Now, I, I don't know where you are at in your spiritual life. Uh, but it may be that you are desperately in need to get on an Emmaus walk with somebody you really trust. To talk things out that need to be said out loud. You know, you can think in your head, but when you say it in front of somebody else that you love and trust... You kind of see it in a fresh way. You know, we have so many secrets, so many things we think that we don't say out loud, so many hurts, so many betrayals, and, and to get those out. Um, confession is good. Venting is good. Uh, and such as this kind of thing can happen on the road to Emmaus. You know, I'm a, I'm a hurry-up person. Yesterday, my wife told me on the way home, in this part of the freeway, please don't go above 60 and uh, on the Emmaus Road, you can't go 60. <laughs> you have to take your time. And maybe that's the point of 480-mile hike, uh, Santiago de Compostelo, 480 miles. You can't run that. <laughs> you have to walk it, and you have to walk some each day. Uh, thank you for reading the scriptures. Thank you for the worship music. I, I was really touched by um, some of the songs. Uh, Wilbur Chapman was... <clears throat> a major evangelist preacher uh, in the 19th century in America on the east, east side. And the first song that we sang, Hillsong is the, holds the copyright. Hillsong is a church in Australia. And it's very much known for its preaching and especially its worship music. The worship music has been such impacting, it's all around the world, and that's why we sang it here. But that one line in there, and, and they've taken over and put a, a fresh um, <coughs> verses in the middle of a very old song and set it to a new tune. But 
that line, my my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil. Now, you and I sing it, and perhaps we have a feeling for what it means, but if you are a first-timer here, and maybe you are, I hope you feel very welcome. I love this church. My anchor holds within the veil. What is it talking about? Um, You know that um, in some of the... in some of the earliest uh, sarcophagus, uh, the containers for the bones of dead Christians, it's not unusual to find an anchor carved into the stone. Because in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as anchoring our faith in heaven. And the sense of the veil is really twofold. One is in the Holy of Holies in the temple, there was this giant curtain, a veil. And inside that was the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, the high priest could go there once a year at Jesus' death. Um, That was torn open. But in the book of Hebrews, it says he goes into the real Holy of Holies, and he anchors us there. Now, if you are much of a sea person, you know how important an anchor is, especially in storm. And... For your anchor to hold, it keeps you safe. And our anchor is in God's presence by faith in Christ. And it holds us. We don't hold it. It holds us. And I think there are many people here who could stand up and say, even when I felt I could no longer hold on to the Lord, he held on to me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It'll probably take you just a minute to spill it. That's usually what happens to me. One time in communion, I spilled the whole thing. Now they don't let me near it, so no, I'm just kidding. So let's let's take this walk to Emmaus, all right? I'm not going to take seven days. Uh, let's just take a few minutes to look at this. Um, I, I do want to suggest these guys walk with their opinions, but at the end they're going to come running back because they've got a new engine, an engine of conviction uh, that's a hold of them. Something has changed them. There's a pretty new book out called Immunity to Change. I don't know if you've seen it, but it grabbed my attention because in the first couple of pages it said, if, uh, in the U.S., um, if a cardiologist is to tell their patient, unless you change, you know, quit smoking or quit drinking or lose weight or start exercising, you know, tell him some dramatic change to this man or woman, you're going to be dead in two years. Out of every five persons that are told by their cardiologist... You must make this change or you will die. How many do you think make the change? Hold up fingers. How many do you think can make the change? Oh, five. Well, that's an optimist, okay? Uh, There's a pessimist. There's a one. We got a two. Got a five, a three, right in the middle. That's good. Okay. The data is one. (laughs) Yeah. Now, if it's your cardiologist, you know, this is somebody who really does know is threatening you with death and only one out of five can change. How can that be? I think I might be highly motivated to change. Uh, Well, that's what this book is about, immunity to change. Inside each of us, these Harvard um, educational psychologists, they're sort of organizational business psychologists, um, they theorize that inside you, inside me, we have two immunity systems. One is wards off germs and uh, infections. So it's the physical one or the physiological one. The other is, uh, I'll say it's psychological or behavioral. Because you and I, we need stability. 
if we're always changing every day, we're probably schizophrenic. So we need stability. We need equilibrium. But that works against us because when we really need to change, instead of changing, we duck down in our rut. I love a good rut, don't you? You know? Um, and if you've ever done some traveling out in, um, and, uh, uh, I think I saw it in South Dakota, you can see the wagon trails when the wagons came westward uh, because the, the ruts are like this deep. You know, those Calistoga wagons had giant wheels. So they could get down in those ruts and they just run. You can still see those ruts. You can walk in those ruts. Uh, I understand in World War II they would tell the soldiers, listen, choose your rut carefully because you're going to be in it a very long time. And I do think we need routine, which probably could be said routine. <laughs> we, we need ruts, but there are times when you and I need a new rut. We need to get out of the rut. And these guys rut had been wrecked, and they had to find a new road. And so they go on the road to Emmaus. So, picking up um, where Rob was reading at verse 13, um, that same day, and you, you know the context is, um, it's Easter day, the resurrection day. And so events have happened, they know the tomb is empty now, but they don't know the details that Jesus has actually risen um, and these two guys, I don't know if they're keeping an appointment or whatever, but they leave Jerusalem heading uh, north to Emmaus, and, uh, which is about seven miles. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And I think that's one of the good things about walking together. You can talk it out. And if it's a long road, guess what? Nobody can talk for seven miles. That means you at least get to talk for one mile yourself, right? You know, we get to talk back and forth. Um, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came, uh, himself came up and walked along with him, but they were kept from recognizing. Now, you stopped at that part. How did that happen? I think maybe a Holy Spirit hoodie, you know, or something. So they couldn't tell it was Jesus uh, at that moment. Maybe they were too busy, focused on what they were doing. Who, who knows all the explanations? Uh, but at that point, they didn't know. So one thing I love about these guys, and this is step one, don't dodge the data. And in a moment, we'll look at all the things that they're, they're working with. What happens when you have more facts than fit your opinion? You know, you need to get a bigger opinion. You need to get a bigger understanding. If new data comes in, what should you do? Well, it's not unusual for us as human beings. New facts come and they don't fit. So what do we do? We just cut them off, you know, and leave facts on the floor. And it doesn't really work. There's, if you remember your Greek mythology, there was that, that giant uh, Cyclops who welcomed people to his house and he would tie them to their bed. And if they didn't fit the bed, you know what he would do? He would stretch them. And if they didn't fit the bed because they were too big, chop off them. You know, it's not the best story in the book, but <laughs> that's, we can't be doing that with the truth. We can't be cutting the truth off if you expect to have uh, a life that's based on reality. So these guys are having this discussion because they've got to figure out how to fuse the data into a new understanding. Well, what are we talking about? Uh, it, it'll, it'll unroll in just a minute. So the first one is, let's just agree. We're no longer going to be data dodgers. All right? If the facts are there, 
We're going to stay with it. We're going to walk on the road until we get the facts in front of us. Second piece. Jesus comes up, verse 17. What are you discussing along the road? And they just stopped them in their tracks. Because he, he had come up to them uh, from the same direction. So he was coming from Jerusalem. It's front page news in Jerusalem that Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified. Um, and their faces cast down. One of them, Cleopas. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? You know, it's almost uh, an abrupt statement. Aren't you, aren't you up with the facts? Don't you read? You know, don't you watch CNN? Don't you check the emails? Um, so the step two is having a deliberate um, conversation with someone you trust. I left out a word there. Deliberate conversation with someone you trust. There is a miracle in dialogue. If you and I will take the time, there is a healing miracle in dialogue. Jesus promised this, actually. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be in the midst. Jesus makes this happen. Um, as we have a conversation with scriptural facts and scriptural data, uh, it, you know, one of the, the cool things that happens on the other side of that door when we have Sunday school, we're looking at scripture, we're sharing the scriptures together, and the Holy Spirit is present, and truth comes out in our lives. Witness happens. And that's, that's this, this experience. So you and I need to look around this room. Who can you really talk to? Take a walk with them. Um, if you need to work these facts out. Third thing. Um, uh, they say to him, what things? And then they answer. And here's, here's where the, the data did not fit um, uh, in this passage. Uh, excuse me, last thing. Verse, um, excuse me. Uh, verse 19. What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they pl- reply. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests, so there's opinion number one. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. Not just words, words and deeds. Not just deeds, but also words. He was showing and he was telling. Uh, you think about the miracles of Jesus and his explanation of those miracles. Uh, They were signs that he interpreted. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now, the they that crucified him is the Romans. It doesn't say Romans, but um, he was handed over and crucified by the Romans. Uh, But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had a messianic hope. But do you notice it's past tense, right? We had hope. We can't hope this anymore because their hope was... That as the Messiah, the son of David, he would take up the power of the throne of David and cast the Romans out and restore the nation of Israel. Theirs was a crown-centered, a throne-centered vision for the Messiah. There was no suffering or cross in their vision. And, you know, sometimes we say you have to bear the cross before you wear the crown. That the cross comes before the crown? He didn't get that. In their thinking, the Messiah came to put down Israel's enemies. But now Israel's enemies had put down the Messiah? It doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. So they're deliberating. How do we get this worked out? And then it gets a little further. In addition... Verse 22, in addition, uh, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. 
They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, can, can we acknowledge something? It is not normal to believe in the resurrection of the dead. You know, for us, we've heard it so often, and we believe in the Lord Jesus. For us, it's, it's, it's normal or natural. But believe me, if you step outside this property, it's not normal. You know, if that was normal, we wouldn't have any funeral homes. We wouldn't have any cemeteries, would we? If, if being raised from the dead, you remember, how, it would have changed the whole way the hospital system works. Um, I still remember on the fifth floor of the Kaiser Hospital in Vallejo, uh, where I was pastor, I never wanted any of my church members to be on the fifth floor because if they put you on the fifth floor in this particular hospital, you were terminal. And so it was not the good news floor. I didn't want my people on the fifth floor. And because in the fifth floor, you didn't usually walk out of the hospital. And I often thought, Jesus, if you walked on the fifth floor and you walk by these rooms and you call these people and heal these people and raise these people from their deathbed, what would that do to the city? <laughs> if all these people in, you know, with the, the things still on their wrists and their robes, they just start walking out. That's going to happen at the end of time. But now it's not normal. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And we're asking people to believe something supernatural. These guys are trying to get their head around it. They're saying that Jesus is not dead. He's alive. That's not easy to do. And to reorganize your thinking, to change like that, that's no easy thing. So, verse 25 so they declared their, their dilemma. It didn't add up. So let's go to step four. Um, if you will do this, these first three steps, and you'll do this um, and ask God's help, you can expect God to show up. You can expect God to enlighten you. Look what happens. How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter the glory? You had it wrong. The scriptures tell you what the order is and you got it wrong. Um, there is a, uh, a professor at uh, a school in Southern California. He never grades the students' papers with a red pen. Uh, now he's a psychologist. He thinks red hurts too much. <laughs> so he only uses green. But I have had some faculty who really like red. They like it a lot. I think Dr. Arbino likes a red pen. <laughs> um, and I have seen my share of red marks on my papers. I remember in second grade, I took this math test and I got everything right. But it was so messy. My teacher, she marked everything up with red. Uh, and... Um, I think it helps some. Uh, but here Jesus, the teacher, is schooling these guys. <coughs> they thought they had taken Old Testament 101. But he said, you have flunked. I'm going to take you now to prophecy 101. I'm, and, and he began to open the scriptures to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Began to open. Now, 
I just want to open two with you because, you know, it's, it, time's, time's moving here. Uh, and you can look this up yourself. But these are amongst the major Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah that make it clear. Suffering will precede glory. Um, the cross will come before the crown. The crown will come. But the cross will come before. Isaiah 53. If, if you have this, you can uh, check it there. I, I saw this actually happen when I was a pretty new Christian. We were at our youth center in this church. And um, a Jewish friend had come who was on the track team. Now, at that time, because I was such a new Christian, I thought all Jews were experts on the Old Testament. I mean, you're Jewish. You should know the Old Testament. Well, I discovered in this, in an earlier conversation, that my friend was very willing to tell me what the Old Testament said. But whenever I went home to see if what he said was so, it wasn't. He was just making it up. And it turned out he didn't even believe there was a God. Now, you know, for, for me, I thought if you're Jewish, you have to at least believe God exists, but you don't. Many are just ethnic Jews. Um, and I do believe that many people you and I think are believing Muslims or believing Jews or believing Hindus, they're not. They just go and do that because it's their tradition, it's their people, but it's not deep in their heart. And uh, so a friend of mine began to share Isaiah 53 with my atheist friend. And I'm not sure my friend really listened, but I did. And this is what I heard. Isaiah 53. Um, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jump down to verse 3. Um, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, um, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him. Verse 5, a big one. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now, when was that written? Well, you know, it's written maybe 700 years before Christ. Well, then who could it be about? I think the rabbis had debated for centuries. Who could this be? It can't be David. Nobody ever pierced David. It can't be Moses. Moses never pierced. It couldn't be Solomon. Who could this be? And Jesus is teaching that when the Messiah comes, it will be him. That through his suffering, the nation of Israel will be healed. That the believers will be healed. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before. Uh, the shearers is silent, did not open his mouth. Um, at the bottom of verse 7. For he was, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Why the cross before the crown? That our sins could be forgiven. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. That's like a little riddle. Uh, because the wicked were just thrown into the dump there called Calvary. And I think when Jesus' body was taken down, that may have been initially the purpose. But do you remember Nicodemus came and got permission to take the body to the prepared grave of Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man? So both are true. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This was God's plan. This was God's plan. I'll skip over to the end, uh, verse 12. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. Um, God's plan was not merely to overthrow the enemies of Israel, but to make intercession for the sins of his people. 
to become the Lamb of God. Psalm 22, another high point in Prophecy 101. I think this might have been also what Jesus schooled them on. By the way, in this story, they'll say, when Jesus was opening the scriptures to us on the road to Emmaus, didn't you feel your hearts get hot? You know, I think if you and I are moving from opinions to convictions, it's going to take some heat in your head or your heart, wherever you do your big thinking. Uh, uh, Psalm 22. Sorry. Roll back here. Now, you remember verse 1 comes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Jesus has... There in the Gospels, there are seven of the last sayings of Jesus recorded on the cross. One of them is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is understood to happen just after noon when it gets dark. Uh, this eclipse uh, to, to show God's disfavor because of sin. And Jesus cries out in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I think at least one of the reasons Jesus says this is to call our attention to this passage. If you want to know why he was forsaken, look at this passage. Um, verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. Do you remember the, you know, how many times Jesus was called the Holy One? Now, usually it was out of the mouth of a demon person uh, who knew who he was. You're the Holy One of Israel. Um, skip down to verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me to trust uh, even in my mother's breast. From birth I was set upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far, for trouble is near. There is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan, roaring lions. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. One of the phenomenon of crucifixion is um, dislocating uh, joints. Verse 10, 16, dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men has circled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat at me. And then verse 18 reads like, like a movie script written a thousand years before the movie actually happens. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. When someone was sentenced to death in the Roman Empire... The soldiers who carried out the execution got the property of that person. Now, you know in the gospel accounts, they divided everything up until they came to Jesus' robe. And they said, we don't want to tear this. So let's, let's cast lots. Let's gamble over it to see who gets it. How could David, writing Psalm 22 in the year, say 1,000, know that this would happen? That's the spirit of prophecy. That's God showing, this is, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Then when I do it, you know it's I who did it. And so if we're going to think through the resurrection, we have to see that there is a God. He's up to something in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the reason for his death and his resurrection. Um, we don't have time to read through the rest of it, but it's, it's an amazing prophecy um, that explains to us why Christ had to suffer And be raised from the dead before he could get the crown. Um, The cross comes before the crown. Um, So back to our story. So we can expect God to enlighten us based on scriptures. His word is a lamp. Is your lamp lit? 
Are you putting your life in a place where Scripture can enlighten you? You know, there's something about this text that the Holy Spirit, when you see these words and hear these words in your heart, the Holy Spirit re-knits you and remakes you. His word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. And that's just what happens to these guys on the road to Emmaus. And why the cross had to happen. Now let's go to step five. Uh, it says in the text that um, as they're getting down the road, they're coming to the, to the end there. And as they approach the village, Emmaus, we assume, Jesus acted as if he was going further. Maybe he was just testing to see. Well, they asked me to stay. But they argued, uh, um, uh, excuse me, uh, so they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So what should you and I do? We should ask for extra time with our best teachers. Now, I teach on Thursday nights, I teach Christian theology over in Mill Valley. And the class gets out at 9.20. Now, people that are in my class often have worked all day, either in classes or at work, and then they come to seminary. So they're tired, right? So um, I go 50 minutes, take a 10-minute break. 50 minutes, 10-minute break, and then 50 minutes, then it's 9.20. And I do have some students who maybe about two minutes before 9.20... They start quietly closing their books and sort of hinting to the professor, class is almost over. Class is almost over, right? And uh, 9.20, I try to stop on time every time. I mean, nobody's that interesting. I know I'm not. So class is over, and it's okay for students to leave when class is over. No problem there. So I start putting my stuff together and I start walking down towards my car and I go past two other classrooms. Now I notice at the third classroom, class has been dismissed, but there are always a small handful of students still talking to that professor. They're like these guys. They want to get extra time with the person who heats up their life with truth and scripture. Um... Have you ever asked the Lord for extra time? Will you please teach me some more? You know, we, you're like me, I assume. I, I, I want to run things on time. But this kind of stuff doesn't really run on time. Uh, this is a different kind of time, quality time. Uh, to ask for extra time to spend with your teacher. Step six. Uh, so what happens? He stays with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and we're about, to, we're about to break bread together, aren't we? I wonder what you and I could see if it could be revealed to us. Their eyes were open, they recognized him, disappeared, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures? So what you and I should have an experience with, and maybe even an expectation, is that our eyes will be open. As illumination happens. Now, I've gone a little longer than I planned, but let me just share this. I think those guys were walking with their opinions as they're talking. And I notice once they see him, they run back to Jerusalem. They just walked seven miles and now they run back. So I, I want to just compare opinions and convictions. Opinions are many. Convictions are few. Opinions camp in my head. Convictions dwell in our heart choices. Opinions are kind of cool to the mind, but convictions heat up the self. 
You hold your opinions, but your convictions hold you. You change your opinions, but your convictions change you. No one lives for an opinion, but people are willing to die for their convictions. Opinions have little power to move men or women, but convictions can move nations. People form temporary opinions, but God shapes eternal convictions, at least the kind we're talking about. Opinions make you interesting. Convictions make you influential. You walk with your opinions, you run with your convictions. You move your opinions, but your convictions move you. And these men became men of conviction that he is risen and organized their life accordingly. I love that, um, that painting where that guy's arms go up like this. Once he recognized Jesus, his arms just went up. And he said, you, you're risen, you're Jesus, you're risen indeed. Uh, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Step seven, conviction demands expression. Um, if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. You know, your hands just go up. Your, your life just goes up. And you realize he's really risen. It changes everything. Um, as we get ready to take the offering in a moment and, and take communion together, just want to cast something towards you. Um, if you're here operating with disorganized opinions, uh, maybe you've got data, but you can't make it match with, with a perspective. Uh, maybe you need to sign up for an Emmaus Road walk. we got somebody here. And say, look, could you give me a couple of hours? I need to talk something out with you. Give yourself some holy time, some pilgrimage time. And ask the Lord to walk with you, even as you talk with this person. If someone asks you to take that walk with them, please set the time aside. Do it. Uh, second, when was the last time you got schooled by Scripture? You know, we, we say we're people of the book. Well, when has the book schooled us? We really looked at the text very carefully and realized, oh, that's what it really means. I understand that. We need to, you know, most people are counting on you to be Bible experts. They're counting on you. They don't know how much you don't know, but they know you come to church and you study the Bible, you must know the Bible. Get schooled in Scripture. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to teach us Scripture. Third, um, if you're here, and now you have recognized that Christ is really Lord, and He's really risen, He's your Lord, then I would encourage you to declare that. Make it known. Ask for baptism. Baptism is... Is for people who have said, Jesus is my Lord. He died for my sin. And I want to kind of dramatize his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to be part of this church. Um, if that's you, then I would encourage you to make that known and declare it. Um, last piece. Change is extremely difficult. And maybe you're living in a rut that is actually a grave. You know, a rut is sort of a grave with the ends knocked out. If you're stuck in a rut, um, cry out to the Lord. Uh, he is good at raising the dead and raising us out of ruts, no matter how deep the rut is.
Jesus came to destroy all the works of the devil, including your rights. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that it was you, Lord, who took your words from Scripture today in the song and in the message to write them in our hearts. Uh, Lord, as we come to give our offering, may we give ourselves first before we give our things. That was Roderick K. Durst of the Gateway Seminary, the professor of historical theology there, on the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday message. We heard his message today about the Emmaus Road and moving from opinion to conviction. You can hear all our past podcasts are archived at our website, kfax.com slash ministry of the week audio, where you can hear other local pastors and parachurch ministry leaders. This is Mike Matthews. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday and join us again here next Sunday at 12 noon for the KFAX ministry of the week Sunday message. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.